Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, thank you for the awesome opportunity that you have afforded to us by your good and gracious providence in our lives. We are all here this morning. We're reminded that we don't deserve that. We are reminded that there are many who cannot be here this morning. So it is a great privilege both by the right that you have granted and by the grace that you have bestowed upon us to give us the strength, the desire, the health to be able to be present. Father, what a great gift we've been given. May we not squander it now. But may the word of God dwell in us richly by faith in Jesus Christ. Father, I ask that we would be made different. That the word of God would find lodging in our hearts. And that you would make a difference in every life as we consider this most important question this morning. So Holy Spirit, move in us, applying the word of God to us, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. John chapter 7, verse 25. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look! He is speaking publicly and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him. and He sent me. Life is filled with many, many questions that people ponder. But there's one question in life that stands above every other question that we may ask. And it is the supreme question because this question surpasses time. It affects every area of our life and will, in the final analysis, affect and determine our eternity. And the question is quite simply this. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Now, I am not here to merely state that mankind spends much of his life asking philosophical questions. I'm here to ask you pointedly this morning the most important question. Who is Jesus? 
I ask you, who do you say that he is? It's not enough for me to tell you who Jesus is. You must confess it yourself. You must know and be persuaded yourself as to who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? You must answer that question. You will answer that question. You may say, I defer to answer that question. No, you may defer for now, but you will not always defer. You will answer the question. Whether here in humility and submission to the reality that Jesus is the Son of God or upon bended knee by force in the future, confessing that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father through clenched teeth. But everyone will confess this. Who is Jesus though now? So that you might answer that question with joy later. This is the question that the Jewish people here in John chapter 7 are wrestling with. And I want you to consider that they give us three responses this morning to that question. And I might say that these may very well be the responses that are given here. But I pray that in the end there would be an overwhelming response of faith. In the face of overwhelming evidence. I want you to see first of all this morning that there is the response of confusion this morning. So some of the people, verse 25 of Jerusalem, were saying, is this not the man who they are seeking to kill? And yet look, look, he is speaking publicly and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? There is a response of confusion as Jesus begins to elaborate and teach more forcefully and more clearly as to who he is in the temple on this great festival, this great holiday, that the confusion of the crowd grows. And it seems on one hand sincere that they are sincerely confused. And on the other hand, it seems to be a a feigned confusion, a, a fake, a ginned up confusion on their part. The anger of some, as we've seen in the the previous passage, would tell us that they are greatly threatened by the power of Jesus. Jesus. And do believe him to be the Messiah. And thus he has come and he has interrupted their system and must be silenced. In their hearts, they know that he is true. They know that he is right and therefore must be quieted because he goes against everything they have been taught to believe. Others respond out of their naivete and their lack of faith and reject him on the grounds merely of human reasoning as we see here in just a moment. There is great confusion. There is great confusion. I want you to notice the emphasis here in verse 25. 
So some of the people are, of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man? Again, it's akin to what we said last week, that man. It's somewhat derogatory. Oh, this is the man. Is this not him? Despite all their denials in verse 20, that he is simply crazy or demon-possessed, and that they haven't sought to kill him, they ask the question here, but wait a minute, isn't this the man you're trying to kill? Having just five verses earlier said, no, this is not the one. Who's trying to kill you? Did, did we say, oh, no. And so no small stir begins. As these people are confused in their chatter, wait a minute, is this not him whom they are seeking to kill? And and notice that like all chatter that is undergirded and bathed in passion, their rumination eventually becomes exclamation. What is quiet? And is this not the man? Is that not, is that the man? And, and, And they get to verse 26 and look at verse 26, no pun intended, but look! It's an exclamation in the original language. Look, they they just finally, out of frustration, look, behold, it overflows. We are bewildered because here sits Jesus and he is walking through and he is talking publicly and he is saying everything that you say is worthy of death. He is leaving no doubt as to who he is, at least according to him. And yet, notice what they accuse the leaders of doing. This is where the confusion comes in. If they are seeking to kill him, and he is speaking publicly, why are they saying nothing to him? Now, notice the irony here. If you're so against Jesus and you want to kill Jesus, uh, religious leaders, why is it you won't even say anything? You talk big. You say you're going to kill him. You're going to take him by force. You're going to stone him as the law would have called for. I, I don't think you mean it. You won't even say anything, let alone do anything. They're right in their challenge. They, they, they spot the hypocrisy and they are confused by it. Why doesn't someone do something? Just go haul him out. Just put a gag on him. Arrest him. Do something. One commentator says, this is a rebuke. These are the people now rising up against their religious leaders and offering a very stern rebuke to them. They reveal the leader's uncertainty as to Jesus' identity, and here's what they say. They don't really know. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? And what are they saying here? They are, they're saying that there's a dilemma One that must be answered, because if he is the Messiah, like he says he is, you religious leaders that are so devout to Yahweh, why don't you bow down? 
if he's really the Christ, and you know it, which we think you kind of might, why don't you bow down? Secondly, if he's not the Christ and he is merely an imposter, why aren't you silencing him? Because the law demands that you do that too. If he's the Messiah, the Old Testament would demand that you bow down. If he's a false prophet, then the law would demand that you stone him. And you are doing neither. Jesus, by the way, was not the first man to come claiming messianic title or position or authority in their day. They had seen this before. And in every other case, those people were silenced. They didn't tolerate that. They didn't tolerate it because they were afraid the Romans would get wind of it. And once the Romans got wind of it, then that was it for all of them. They were going to be slaughtered. And so the Jews were very careful to police themselves. They didn't want that kind of trouble. And so why aren't the religious leaders acting? They're not doing anything. Which is an indictment upon their leadership. Everybody wants leaders to make a stand, don't they? We've watched in great frustration in our own culture, in our own country, over the past week as elected officials go to places of power and do absolutely nothing. It's frustrating. Nobody likes a spineless leader. Everybody wants a leader who knows the truth and will act on the truth. And the people here are calling out their religious leaders for failing to do so. Why don't they act? We clearly see the error of the leaders. They have blasphemed Jesus. They have rejected Jesus. It has gone so far as to insinuate he is acting in the power and is a pawn of Satan. And so it's very easy to look at the leaders and say, this is how inspired scripture has recorded their acts. We know this is the leaders, but what about the crowd? How's the crowd responding in all of this? It is a little less clear, I think, how the crowd has responded to Jesus because notice what the crowd goes on and says. Verse 27. However, we know where this man is from. And and, and you're thinking, hey, upon first reading of this, these people are going to get it. They're going to, to land right where they need to land. We know where he's from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Hey, we know, but nobody else knows yet. That might be one way we are tempted to look at this. But what they are in essence saying is that this is not an unclear response from the crowd. This is a very clear response from the crowd. What they are indeed saying is this. We know where Jesus is from, meaning we... No, he's from Nazareth. They're not saying that we know he's from God. They're saying we've been to his hometown. In fact, we we know his mom and dad. We know Joseph. We know Mary. We know his siblings. And by the way, we know his siblings. Maybe even some of them are on our side. 
thinking he's lost his mind. And so the crowd is errant in their understanding. They're very clear. They seem to be a little more clear than the leaders because they're at least willing to admit, hey, this is not the Messiah. This is not the promised one of God because when Christ comes, according to rabbinic lore, he would arise out of their midst from a place not known. He would live among them, he would be among them, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he would emerge as a great leader, a great conqueror. He would appear in a miraculous, otherworldly entrance. Rome would fall. And the Jewish people would triumph. He would be hidden among them until that time. It's a view that is common in ancient Near Eastern theology, even today as Shia Muslims and Shia eschatology speak of the great Mahdi and the 12th Imam who will live among the people and then at a certain time arise with great and miraculous power and, you know, set up the caliphate and all of these sorts of things. These people in that part of the world had long anticipated this and even the rabbinic teachers had begun to teach that this is how the Messiah would eventually come to them. And so there's great confusion about who Jesus is. There's great confusion about his identity. And may I say that in every age, Satan has always made sure that there is great confusion about who Jesus is. Because you, if you are confused about who Jesus is, you will most certainly be confused about what he has done. It's true in our day that while there's much talk of Jesus, I have great concern that very few people really understand the Jesus of Scripture. I'll never forget a number of years ago, a a man whom I've known for uh, quite some time who grew up in church and grew up in a very religious upbringing. And would consider himself, even to this day, a very religious man. And he is he's a very kind man. He's a, he's a, he is a, a sweet man. But in all sincerity, he cornered me one day and said, Can you help me understand? He said, So are you telling me that Jesus was really God? And, you know, my heart just sunk in pity for this man who spent so much of his life in church and yet does not know the identity of Jesus. And it's impossible to understand the cross work of Jesus unless you first understand Jesus' ability to carry out the cross work because of his identity, because of who he is. The crowd is greatly confused. Brothers and sisters, we need to, as the people of God who know who Jesus is, who have trusted not only in his person but his work, we must make clear before we get to anything else who Jesus is. He is the Son of God, eternally self-existent from the Father, sent to earth, 
truly God and truly man in a miraculous union of two natures. And yet he is God. And yet he is man. This is who Jesus is. We must be clear on this point. Ligonier Ministries from time to time will release a state of the church survey in partnership with Lifeway and they examine and question people about Jesus. These are self-professing evangelicals and in the latest version of that to come out 30% of all confessing evangelicals they profess to be evangelical Christians don't even believe that Jesus is God. 30% of people in the churches in Midland today don't believe Jesus is who he says he is. That is confusion that leads to ruin an eternal detriment to them. We must be clear. These people in the crowd want their leaders to be clear about this confusion. But I want you to notice verse 28. We come across the second response, and that is the response of clarity. Jesus is unequivocal. Jesus brings clarity. Notice how the text is worded. Then Jesus cried out. Where else do you read of Jesus crying out? On the cross? Great moment of emotional angst and duress. He cries out in the temple. It is a solemn pronouncement that Jesus is making. It is the strongest of emotion. Crying out. Jesus is truly man. He is truly a product of his culture. He is a Middle Eastern man. He is a Jewish man. And if you've ever watched that culture, you know what these types of emotional outbursts can look like. They're very emotive people. Very passionate and strong in what they say, and uh, it, it, when you watch them dialogue with each other, even today in debate, they, they become variant. We're, we're so sophisticated in the West, we don't do these kinds of things, but, but they're very animated, and they're very passionate, and they're very loud, and they're very in-your-face. About the closest thing I think we can get in the West is the British Parliament. They shout one another down. But here Jesus, in the midst of all of the the confusion and the cacophony of questioning, he cries out. Strongest of emotion. And he cries out, not a suggestion, not a multiple choice, not a you choose book, not a lack of clarity, but utter prophetic boldness. He began teaching them, and this is what he says. You both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. 
This is not taken lightly by Jesus. And because it cannot be taken lightly, it cannot be pronounced timidly. If you have truth to say, say it. Doesn't mean you have to be a jerk. It doesn't mean you have to be unkind. But you do need to be bold. And Jesus is bold. And Jesus is perfect in this prophetic pronunciation. We need to tell who Jesus is as Jesus tells it. And who he is is demonstrated with great clarity and great conviction here in the passage. And I would say to us this morning, if those who follow Jesus wish to follow their stated desire to be like Jesus, isn't that what all Christians say? We may not mean it all the time, but we say it because it's part of the Christian vernacular and vocabulary we just want to be like jesus great if you want to be like jesus be clear if you want to be like jesus be bold if you want to be like jesus be direct don't hold back from speaking like jesus you do want to be like jesus right i hope so and in this case it necessitates that we clear up the confusion by clarity He challenges their hypocrisy and feigned confusion in dealing with his nature. He challenges their inaction. He he, he draws a line in the sand for the religious leaders. He's going to force them to take him seriously. He's going to call out their unbelief. And notice what he says, you do know who I am. And you do know where I am truly from. And I don't mean Nazareth. I'm not interested in a geography lesson. I am interested in a theology lesson. You know who I am. You know where I am from. Speaking of his father's presence. And you know that the God I refer to. And the father that I refer to. Is the true God. The same one you claim to worship. So what's your problem? I am from the true God. Where are you from? Flips the table. Metaphorically here. At other times, literally. But he turns the tables on them. And he says, I know who I am. You know who I am. You know where I'm from. I am from the true God who sent me. The only right conclusion about who Jesus is, is that Jesus is God. He is the Son of God. He has come from the Father. There is no room for equivocation in this answer. None. None. And if I might encourage you and exhort you that if you are not brushed up on the identity of Jesus and if you are not solid in this and if you don't read on this and you don't comprehend this then now is a great time to start because i can promise you that in a very applicatory way which preaching should always have application to or it's not preaching we are about to go into i believe another time in our life where the identity and the deity of christ is going to be challenged this happened shortly after 
9-11, when documents such as Yale's A Common Word Between Us and You, where they sought to come together with Christians and Muslims and say that, well, you know, basically we believe in the same God and, you know, Jesus is just basically a, a good... T- no! As we see the, the focus in our world swing back to a focus on the Islamic religion, I can promise you we will have to have this discussion again. And the people of God need to be clear. Who is he? Where is he from? How did he get here? He is from the true God. He is God. And there is no equivocation on it. Jesus says, you know where I'm from. How do they know where he's from? One, by his works. It's not just his words, but it is his words backed up by his works. When was the last time you healed a lame man laying by the pool for 38 years? Uh, Come to think of it, never. That's right. Why? Only God can do that. You know very well who I am. And you know very well where I am from. You're in a denial of reality. You're not merely denying someone's fantasy about someone pretending to be God. You are in denial of the truth. And in such you are in direct opposition and rebellion to God. You know and you know. That's how it's worded in the Greek. You know and you know. Doesn't come across in English very well, but in the Greek it does. You know and you know. And here's the two things you know. You know where I'm from and you know who sent me. Therefore, I am God. And it's a piercing indictment. You know all that I am. You know all that I've said and done. You've been keeping careful records to take to the court. You know all that I've claimed. And by the way, you know it's true. Because God is true. And if I'm God, then I, like him, am true. The problem is not with Jesus. It's not with a lack of clarity. The problem is with them and their rejection of the truth. Now, I want you to notice this. Because this might breed confusion in your own mind. Jesus says, you know me. You know where I am from. You know that I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true. And you're thinking, well, if they know all of this, why does Jesus say what Jesus says next? Whom you do not know. That sounds a little confusing, doesn't it? You know and you know, and yet you do not know. Is Jesus contradicting himself? Not at all. Jesus is telling them, you do know the truth. You, however, are rejecting the truth. You do not know does not mean that they don't have cognitive ability to understand or know. But they are living in rejection, not in faith, of who Jesus is. Thus, they don't functionally even know the true God. Now, to a Jew, that is an insult beyond insult. They prided themselves on being the people of God, of knowing God. 
of God knowing them. And Jesus says, you have no relationship with the Father. You have no relationship with God. You do not know him. What got him in trouble in Capernaum? Explaining why they don't know him. Telling them you don't know because the Father has not drawn you. Those whom the Father draws will come to me, Jesus says, will acknowledge me, will bow before me. But you have not been drawn by the Father, therefore you don't know the Father. And the more you reject, the more hardened you become. Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. I haven't worked in you. You are under judgment. Wait a minute. We are the chosen people of God. How dare you? You don't know God. If you did, it'd be evidenced in your acceptance of who I am. It doesn't get much clearer than that, does it? John six thirty seven. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And again, this is not a, a cruel picture of Someone who wants to and the Father won't. No, people who aren't being drawn don't care. They are the Pharisees. They are the Jews here. They are happy not to be drawn to the truth. The insult they must be feeling at this point, these who have prided themselves on their status as the people of God, even teachers of God and God's people, To be told they don't even know him. How insulting and astounding. Jesus continues on. He's not, he is not phased by their rejection. Because he goes on and he says in verse 29, I know him. I know him. And I know him because I am from him. And he sent me. Listen, crowd, I don't need you to accept what I'm saying in order for it to be true. I don't find my validation in my proclamation because I'm dependent on your verdict. Fine, you don't know. I know. And I know because I'm from him and he sent me. Jesus is not dependent on anyone or on anyone's response to make him God. He is whether anyone receives him or not. We need to get that through our minds, that that God is not dependent. He is other than. Is it to our horror that some reject him? Yes. But it's not to our confusion. Because as God, he's not waiting on them to accept him so that he can then validate himself. No, he is the independent God. 
Though all men reject him, he stands unfazed and unharmed in who he is and in what he's come to do. He's been sent for this very purpose to make God known. It's on them if they reject it. So one can only imagine the shock to hear such accusations leveled at them. Clarity is not necessarily their friend. But there is a third response that is evident in this passage, and that is a response of conviction. Their conviction in the words of Jesus is clear. Because now they perpetually seek him. Look at verse 30. So they were seeking to seize him. The word seeking is a verb that has no end to it. It is a frenetic and constant activity now among these Jews. They've heard enough. They are now going to make it their mission to seize him. And the word is to overpower or gain control over someone. They were seeking to overpower Jesus, to seize him, to gain control over him so that they might silence him, perhaps temporarily, perhaps permanently, but they are seeking to silence Jesus, and they will not stop. It is their ever-present activity. It almost seems comical, doesn't it? I don't know what this would have looked like. I would love to have seen this. Angry men with fire in their eyes, with rejection in their hearts, everywhere and every moment of the day, seeking to silence, to overpower. You're going to overpower God? This ought to be fun. You know, let, 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 let's watch this happen. The one who spoke the world into existence, good luck with that. This is going to be good. They, they want a red wrestling match with God. Oh, ask Jacob how that worked out. Walked with a limp. And he's glad he had the limp. They are challenging God. Their seething anger gives way to their impotent plans. How many of you have ever been threatened by someone that has absolutely no ability to carry out the threat? How did you respond? I'm going to beat you up. Says a two-year-old. All right, go for it, big guy. You know, I, I'm I'm, I'm going to ruin you. Go ahead. I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that, or I'm going to do the other. And you know, they have absolutely no ability to act on what they're saying. You just kind of laugh it off. Maybe, like, actually laugh about it. But if somebody comes up to you and you know that they have both the ability, the desire, and the determination to do it, what do you do? You get real serious. 
I'm going to destroy you. They've got a reputation. They've got a legal team. They've got whatever. What is, what's your first move tomorrow morning? You're calling somebody say, hey, I need some help. I need some backup here. I need to make sure this doesn't happen. Why, you're convinced. You're convicted that this is a real situation. That's the religious people. If Jesus is just another loudmouth guy coming and hoping to carry out some messianic vision for himself, who cares? A dime a dozen, especially around the festivals, happens every single year. In fact, three times a year, we've heard this over and over and over again. Just ignore it. It'll go away. But they aren't ignoring Jesus. Why? They're convicted. They know. They are convinced that he has not only the truth of who he is behind him, but he has the power behind him to do what he has said he would do. And you have to know that as these people go to bed at night, the Old Testament that they would have known like the back of their hand starts scrolling through rather quickly. And all that was predicted and prophesied of the Messiah and his power and his victory over his enemies starts scrolling through their heads. They're convicted, and so they must act. And so they seek constantly to seize him. But notice the last part of that. And no man laid his hand on him. You want proof that Jesus is God, this is it. Again. They are men of ability... They are men of determination. They are men who have a track record of doing what they threaten to do here. And they are seeking to do what they have done in the past. And they can't. No man laid hands on him. Not because of desire. Lack of desire. No man lays hands on him. Why? The very end of verse 30. Because his hour had not yet Come, in God's sovereign time frame, it is not time for Jesus to go to the cross. Not yet. Therefore, you're not going to touch him. You may try. I would love to know what that looked like. Could they just not find him? Were they just blind to him? Did they reach out for him and grab him and it just their hand slipped? I mean, what? Because it is not for lack of trying. They are actively seeking him. They want to subdue and domesticate the God of creation. You can't do that. They want the God of creation to be something of their own imagination that they can control. You can't do that. Jesus is the sovereign God of the universe. And unless he says you can touch him, you don't touch him. They may not like what he says. We may not like what he says. But it doesn't change the reality. We may hate what he 
says, but it doesn't change the truth. You will never overthrow him or change him. Many were seeking to seize him. And no man laid his hand on him. It just didn't work. It was impossible. Why? His hour hadn't come. We know what happens when his hour comes though, don't we? He surrenders himself. What does that say about the grace and the mercy and the determination of God to save sinners? Had they seized Jesus, it would mean infinitely less than what happened to him on the cross actually means. It would mean nothing. But the fact that he lays his life down volitionally, willingly, tells us so much of what we need to know about our salvation, that it was God-planned, God-executed, God-finished. It wasn't the works of men. It wasn't just the the harebrained idea of Jesus in his humanity to do. No, this is God-designed, God-carried out. And until he was ready to do it himself, no man was going to do that to him. This is who Jesus is. There need not be this confusion, this hypocrisy. It's very clear. And so as Jesus asked his disciples So long ago, standing in Caesarea Philippi, so I ask you this morning, who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? And then I have a follow-up question. To any of you who are here this morning, and you have rejected Jesus, May I ask you why? Why would you want to reject the Savior? Who loved you and gave his life for you? Who gave up for a time the worship and the glory of heaven to endure the trials of this life, the temptations of Satan, such that you have never even faced? To lay down his life in your place so that you might go free? Why would you want to reject that? Why do you want to claim the right to defy God? Why do you want to reserve the right to call God a liar? It's ludicrous. It's it's literal insanity to reject such obvious truth. And it will be futile. Because there will come a day when you do confess Jesus to be who he says he is. But if you wait until that day, it will not be with joy that you confess it, but with grief. 
and much angst. But Christ is available today to any who will come to him by faith. That faith isn't even from you. You find yourself at a point and you say, you know, I, I believe. I desire to believe. And I believe that I do. Know this, God is drawing you. God is drawing. God grants the faith even to believe in His Son. So if you find yourself in that position this morning, do not neglect it. Confess, believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Sent from the Father. To live a perfect life in your place. Die in your place so that he may carry your sins to the grave. Having dealt with them forever. This is a glorious truth. Don't be like the crowds. Don't be like the Pharisees. Come to Jesus. In faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for great mercy shown to us in your word, revealing your son to us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would preach a better sermon than what I have preached to the hearts and minds of everyone here, everyone listening online. Only you, Holy Spirit, can take the message from the ear to where it needs to go and to accomplish the work you desire to do with it. And I ask now in total and complete dependence upon you that you would do that work. Though my words are weak and frail, your word and your work is mighty, omnipotently so. And so, Father, be pleased, I pray, that to send your spirit with all of his illuminating and enlightening power to the mind, his regenerating power of the heart to give the new birth, to grant faith to believe that anyone who is here finding themselves in the position of either the leaders or the crowd, that they would be humbled and brought to Christ. And that in doing so, they would be willing to talk about that and to share that and to ask those questions so we might study the word of God so we might pray together to seek the Lord while he may be found Jesus glorify yourself you are a great and sovereign savior and we praise you for it and we ask all of this in your precious and holy name amen